This morning, I want to carry on speaking. Um, Carly spoke to us a couple of weeks ago, and she spoke incredibly well on church as family. And um, this morning, I want to talk about church as community, and I want to kind of take it on from where she started and, uh, and, then, and, and talk about some other things as well. And um, so we're going to talk about church as community. And um, as we start into that, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you the question, what kind of church do you want to be? You are the church, so what kind of church do you want to be? You want to be an active church, yep, so there might be words like active, Any, anything else? What kind of church do you want to be? A loving church? A worshipping church? A church that's reaching out? Okay, so lots of kind of different ideas about what we should be corporately together. And um, as I was thinking about, well, what kind of church would we want to be, um, I thought of this. An innie. Do you think that this... <laughs> yeah, I can get away with putting body parts up, that's fine. Um, when, when I think about church and I think about um, the things that we've been talking about recently, I actually think about any. I think, does all the things that we've talked about mean that we are inward-looking, navel-gazing kind of church? Because we've talked about looking after each other and being together. And so I want to just remind you of a couple of the... Um, verses that we've been looking at over the last few weeks from Acts. So I'm going to start in Acts 2, and uh, it says, And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any has need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So you've all heard those verses. We, we've talked about them from different angles over the last few weeks. And um, if you think about those verses, you might think of a very inward-looking church. And so I want to go on a couple of chapters to uh, chapter 4. And uh, in verse 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them, and there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses, they sold them. And they brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as they had need. Now, as you read that, you might, you might once again think of a group of people that was quite inward-looking. Looking after each other, making sure all their needs were met. And um, I think the, the church has been accused over the centuries of being inward-looking and navel-gazing and not understanding the world around them. If we go on another couple of chapters, at uh, the beginning of chapter 6 of Acts, it describes how there became an argument between two different groups in the early church. 
Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, arose against the Hebrews, that's the the Hebrew church, um, the Jews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So here's a church who, who they're looking after the needs of the people around them, and actually some of the people were being missed out. Now, I'm going to just take a little diversion for a moment at this point. I want us just to think about widows. And um, actually, I think throughout Acts, we are told that widows need special attention amongst us as a church. I want to give thanks to one particular person this morning, somebody who deserves great honor, um, which is Sue. Now, Sue, I don't know whether you know, Sue washes all the manky cloths from the riverside. She takes all the, the tea towels and she takes them home and they reappear freshly laundered, maybe even ironed, I'm not sure, but they're all in neat little piles in the cupboard. And Sue does that. And people don't necessarily, well, they didn't know that she did that until today. And she's been doing it for years. And um, actually, the widows amongst us serve functions that we don't always see. And what we're told in Acts is actually we need to give special honor to the widows amongst us. And I want to just raise widows in your attention today. And there are widows amongst us. And actually, we're told that we should pay special attention to make sure their needs are met. The other group, which they don't talk about in Acts, but I think come into a similar category for us, is the single mums. Because I think single mums can be really overlooked very easily within our church. And you might think, yes, this is all inward-looking. But actually, I believe these groups need special honor and special attention amongst us, helping them be able to fulfill their mission with God as they are part of our family. If you um, have been on our Joining the Church course, you'll you'll have been given a sheet, and on this sheet it talks about one anothering verses. And it lists a whole huge number of verses which actually talk about us looking after one another in different ways. So it has things like loving one another, being devoted, being kind to one another, bearing with one another, forgiving, comforting, being hospitable, serving, carrying each other's burdens, praying, being compassionate. These are all things that we can see are good, and they're all from the New Testament. And it's all the story of the early church, how they looked after each other, They submitted to one another, confessed their sins to one another, and lived in harmony. They didn't lie to each other. They didn't slander. They didn't grumble. They didn't provoke envy in each other. They accepted each other. They were encouraging. They built one another up. They belonged to one another. They honored one another. They considered others better than themselves, and they were humble, and they spurred each other on. And they had fellowship together. They had peace together. They taught one another and they told each other off. And all these things we see in the New Testament. And as you see all those things, you might just think, well, the church is inward looking. And so I want to think about, is the church inward looking? And I want to tell a little story. If you've read the um, little book on Acts that was recommended a few weeks ago, it's got this story in it about Gandhi. 
Now, when I read it, I didn't realise that Gandhi went to university in South Africa, which you wouldn't immediately think of. But he went over to South Africa, and uh, he was at university, and he was reading the Bible. And uh, as he read the Bible, he thought, I need to know more about who this Jesus is and what these Christians are like. So he went to church, and he happened to choose a church that was an all-white church. Now, you can imagine the reception that he got as he walked into the all-white church. And they sat him in the back row, gave him a little space on his own, and ignored him. And uh, he, he left, and he said afterwards, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. I wonder what would have happened if he had been received differently. Would we have had a Christian India that was founded on Christian principles and have a billion Christians in India today? I don't know. Maybe that wasn't God's purpose. But it was interesting that even just a short exposure of church life and actually he couldn't see that it was anything like the Bible. So was the early church just inward looking? I don't think so. So the opposite of an innie is an outie. So that one looks really grim. I'm sure he's got a little kind of parambolical hernia there that probably is going to need repairing later. And, um, but, but the opposite of the innie is the outie. And uh, so I just want to have a look at what would an outward looking church be like and what does it speak about that in the new testament so i want to start with christ christ started his ministry um, and he was in the temple and he said can you bring me the scroll and they bring him the scroll and he undoes the scroll and this is what he reads from isaiah the spirit of the lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's how he starts. That is kind of the initial basis of all of his teaching on kingdom. And we spent a long time talking about kingdom last year. And this is Jesus' kind of bedrock. This is where he starts from. That actually he came to bring that time in. A time that was completely different. That looked out for the poor, the vulnerable, the sick, the oppressed. So that's where Jesus starts. The next verse that I've got up there on the screen is from 1 John. And you think, well, Jesus didn't say that. No. John was his beloved disciple. The disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how John describes himself. And he, so he knew Jesus probably better than just about anyone. And this is what he says. By this we know love, that he, that's Jesus, laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's good, sees his brother in need, and yet closes his heart against him, 
How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so he encourages the early church that actually these things are important, that actually Jesus said we need to be looking out for the poor and the oppressed that are around us. Now, before the next set of quotes go up, I want to ask you a question. I was watching a video uh, this week from a guy called Simon Pettit. Some of you will know who he is, and some of you won't, and I'm going to come back to that later in a moment. But in the um, sermon that I was watching, which is called Remember the Poor, he asks a question. And he quotes from the Bible, and he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is. I just want you to think about that for a moment. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is. How would you finish the sentence? It's tough, isn't it? What is kind of true faith, true religion, what does it really look like? So, how does James finish the verse? He says, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep yourself unstained from the world. That's how James puts that. So actually, if we are going to live as Christ wanted us to, James was Jesus' brother. He probably knew him quite well too. He says, actually, these are the things that we need to be thinking If actually we want to follow on in our faith, if we want to live for God, then actually we need to look after the orphans and the widows and we need to keep ourselves pure. And he goes on to say, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that they need for their body, well, what's the point? What's the good of that? It's just a a waste of time. Now, you might be thinking, well, you're picking out these quotes from the New Testament, but actually they talk about the brothers. And so, therefore, it's nothing to do with the people outside the church, but again, once, once again, just to do with the people who are inside the church. And I don't believe that's true at all. You all know the verses from 1 Corinthians 13. Because every time you go to a wedding, it gets read out. And it finishes the chapter, these three things are the most important, faith, hope, and love. Now, if you're a little older, you'll remember being in church and in weddings, and it was being read from the King James, where it says, these three things remain, faith, hope, and charity. And actually, the word love is not love, mushy love which I think is probably how most of us think about it when we're in a wedding service, but actually it's a giving love. It's a love that looks after others. It's how we think about the word charity. And actually, Paul says, if there's three things that are most important, it's having your faith and having your hope, but actually the most important beyond all those things is that actually you are charitable in your giving And you're loving of those who are around you. In Galatians 2, 
Paul's there, and, and uh, he's there with Barnabas. And um, they are kind of talking about, well, what's happening with the church? What's happening with the Galatian church? What's happening in the churches around? And Paul says this. He says, only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing that I was eager to do. And actually, this was Paul's heart. That they remembered the poor around them. It wasn't about those needs being met in the church. Yes, they needed to be an any church because there was a command to do that. But actually, they needed to be an outy church too. They needed to be both any and outy. I said that I would come back to um, Simon Pettit, and uh, I just want to play a tiny clip of a video. Now, Simon um, was British. He was in South Africa. Um, He died, I think, in New Zealand um, from a heart attack at quite a young age. But um, in 1998, he spoke to the Brighton Leaders Conference, so to all the leaders of New Frontiers. And it was a pivotal turning point in New Frontiers' understanding of who they were as a group of churches. And it actually turned their eyes to looking out for the poor. And um, so I just want to play you a tiny excerpt from that. That's how James defines true religion. You see, brothers and sisters, the gospel is good news to the poor. It just is. You can spiritualize it. You can try and get under it, over it, round it. You can explain it away, but it is. It just is. And it just is. It's great news because when we go to the poor and we meet their needs, they understand who Christ is. And Christ was really clear about us meeting the needs. How do we know that? You'll probably be familiar with the story of the sheep and the goats that Jesus tells. And he's talking about being in heaven and being before God, being judged in heaven. And this is what he says. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these and my brothers, you did it for me. And he goes on to explain how God will sort people out like sheep and goats, which look almost identical. I know they don't in the Peak District. They're woolly and they're not woolly. But if you're in the Middle East, the sheep and the goats look very similar. So um, they look the same on the outside, but they're very different in how they're made up. And uh, Jesus says, actually, we're going to take the sheep, but we're going to have to leave the goats. And what's the difference between the sheep and the goats? How they look after the poor. 
So for Jesus, this was a fundamental understanding of how he wanted his church to be. He wanted his church to be a church that looked after the poor. I want to bring us back to Gandhi. He was in India. He was leading the country. He'd had this experience in the past, but he understood what the Bible said. And he spoke to Christian missionaries who were all around him. There was missionaries all across India. And he said, if Christians would really live according to the teachings of Christ, as found in the Bible, all India would be Christians. And I think it's true. And I want to Britainize that today. If actually the Christians in the UK would live like it says in the Bible, actually all of the UK would be Christians. And that's a really sobering thought, isn't it? That actually, if we live differently, if we live how Christ has intended us to live, that actually we're going to see massive change. You know, we're like Christ. When God looks at us, he sees Christ. He sees us perfect, undefiled before God. He doesn't see us as something that is worthless, but he sees something that is of immense value. And yet, in ourselves, we all behave in a way that is not like Christ. And I know that. I know that for me. And I don't take the opportunities that I should to speak about Christ or to be like Christ. People will listen to our words but actually, they'll hear your actions. And so as we behave differently, people will see what it is to be Christ-like. I've heard it said, well, the church would grow if only we had a whole load of full-time workers. And yet, it would be fantastic, I think, as elders, if we had a bit more time together sometimes. That would be really helpful. But actually, I don't see that if we had a whole load of full-time workers, that it would change who we are as a church. And I don't see the outside world around us changing dramatically just because we'd pay a load of people. Paul worked part-time. He still seemed to be quite effective in his ministry, I'd say. And I want to say, actually, as I look out, I see a hundred full-time church workers It's not about the people at the front. It's about all of us. We are the church and we can make the difference. I think it's fantastic uh, what we do um, with Jigsaw, with the food parcels. Um, I think the Tot Zone stuff we do in the middle of the week, just so valuable. Brilliant stuff. And I love the fact that people give their time, their energy, their money for these things. I think we should be doing these things. And as we move building... I say that with faith. As we move building and we're next door to Hurst Farm, where probably some of the biggest needs in Matlock are, I believe God will give us opportunity to work with the poor more than we've had opportunity in the past. And that excites me because I believe that's what we should be doing as a church. And I believe as we do it, we will see some church growth. A guy called Alan Hirsch said this, All great missionary movements began at the fringes of the church among the poor and the marginalized and seldom, if ever, at the center. 
And when the church engages at the fringes, it almost always brings life to the center. And I believe as we look outwards, we'll see life in the center because actually people will be saved and people will come and join us and they will change our very being. They will change what we look like and what we feel like. And that might feel quite threatening, but actually I believe it's going to be fantastic. David Livingstone, who I was named after, obviously not Peter, but my middle name, David, um, um, said this, sympathy is no substitute for action. And um, as a missionary, he wasn't much cop, actually. He went across Africa, and uh, he said, um, you need to use organs to do worship. And they were importing organs from Scotland for worship in Africa. It, it just didn't work. It wasn't effective evangelism. But actually, working with the poor was something that he saw as very important. And so as they went to villages and towns, actually, they looked at how can we get clean running water, because he was a doctor, so he thought about those things. Um, How can we look after the needs of the poor and the oppressed and the sick? Dave Watmore sent an email to the the elders this week, and um, he said some of the same things. And he preached a couple of weeks ago, didn't he, on salt and light. And uh, he writes in his email, the issue is not, are we doing enough evangelism? It is, are we equipping ourselves to be effective in our evangelism? We are called to be salt and light. And the definition I gave recently is that salt has to be in contact with people. And those people have to have a relationship with God. And then actually the salt changes. The definition for light is that we are being seen and that it's understood by those around us as a clear statement of the gospel. And actually... I think Dave summarized in a really short bit there what it is to be an outward-looking church. Because as we go out and we are salt and we are light in our communities and we change our communities, we're going to see people saved and we're going to see our communities changed. So I asked the question at the beginning, what kind of church do you want to be? Do you want to be an innie? Do you want to be an outie? Well, actually, I don't want to be either of those things. I want to be a nonnie. Okay. Now, I think that's been badly photoshopped. I don't think that's real. But um, I have, in the past, removed people's belly buttons in surgery, and they've had no belly button anymore. And they are then a nonny, because they don't have one. And I believe if we are fully inward-looking, as we should be, we have a biblical mandate to look after each other. If we are fully outward-looking, which we have a biblical mandate to do, to look after the poor, the oppressed the ones who are in prison, the ones who haven't got clothing. As we do both those things and we are fully outwards and fully inwards in the way we have our compassion, then actually we will be neither. And actually, I think that's the way Jesus meant us to be. He doesn't want us to be navel-gazing. He doesn't want us to be herniating out of our stomachs. All he wants is for us to do both and do it fully. So, I want to challenge us, and this is a challenge for me, a big challenge for me. How are we going to be outward-looking this week? How are we going to do that? And for each of us, that's going to look slightly different, I'd suggest. 
For some of us, it might be having coffee. I rib Pamela often about the number of coffees she has in a week. But actually, I think she's great. She goes and has coffee with people in the church and out of the church. And she talks to them and she loves them. And now I don't have space in the middle of my day to go for coffee with people. So I can't do that. But actually, for Pamela, she can, and she does it well. So I value Pamela in having coffee. For some of you, it might be about the grumpy man on the corner, who you don't even necessarily nod at, let alone say good morning to. And it might mean that this week you stop and you talk to the grumpy man and have a conversation which starts to break down the barriers with his grumpiness. It might be that you see the big issue seller, and rather than buy the magazine or not buy the magazine, you engage them in conversation about why they're selling it. What is it that's happened in your life that's led you to be on the street selling the big issue? I don't know what it's going to be for you, but I want us to finish perhaps differently to usual. We often come back to worship. And I want to finish in small groups today. I want you to get into groups of two, three, four. Not big groups, little groups. And I want you to pray about your opportunities this week. I want you to pray that God would give you opportunity to do something. There might be something that's on your mind already. And actually you want to share that and you want to be accountable for the fact that you're going to go and do X, Y, or Z. Because I believe as we share with each other these things, as we pray them through, and as we are accountable to one another, we'll be shocked at what God actually does amongst us. So I want to finish at that point, and I want to encourage you, and I want to ask you, how are you going to be outward looking this week?